Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. It is Sunday, January 30th, 2011. My name is Doug Taylor and we are starting tonight in Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 4. And the verse reads like this, the beginning of a quarrel is like releasing water. Before the argument is revealed, abandon it. Very interesting structure by King Solomon. The beginning of a quarrel is like releasing water. Before the argument is revealed, abandon it. So before we try to explain the verse, let's just get some questions out that we would want to make sure we answer in the process. What do you think those questions would be? Terry, excellent, thank you. Why abandon it? You know, well, what's what's he trying to tell us there? Why would we do that? Um, and and we might ask ourselves, um, what's what's the meaning of the analogy in the first half? And Laurie and Terry, yeah, you're starting to suggest some possibilities here. Hard to stop water. Um, and then I'd be curious as to how the second half works. I mean, what does it mean to abandon the argument before it is revealed? Uh, and, you know, as you say, Terry, why do that? And Linda, good. What's meant by a quarrel? So <clears throat> let's start with some definitions. I would suggest that a quarrel is when basically two people are arguing, some kind of a fight, some kind of interaction that is not producing uh, a positive outcome that, you know, you would like to have happen. Uh, a dictionary that I have at hand says, quarrel is an angry argument or disagreement, typically between people who are usually on good terms. That's the uh, Mac dictionary that, that popped up for me. So we've got a quarrel, the beginning of a quarrel, uh, beginning of a, a fight between two people. So the question then is, What's the analogy with releasing water? Well, once you have some water, whether it's whether it's in a bag or it's in a box or it's in some kind of a container, and you release it, uh, it's, as you say, uh, Laurie and Terry, very hard to put back. Uh, and yes, it finds its way into everything. Once it starts, it tends, if you've got enough water, it tends to grow into a torrent. Uh, very difficult to stop it from, you know, going anywhere. Uh, very difficult, almost impossible to push the water back once it's been released. So once it goes, the spill is going to happen. And there's not a lot that can be done about it. So the verse is telling us that if we see it coming, stop the argument before it starts. In other words, we, we see the beginning of a quarrel as a possibility. Um, and so the, the verse is saying before an argument is revealed, before it comes out, before it is uh, um, uh, even, even shown, we want to anticipate it and stop it before it ever starts because once it starts it's like releasing the water and you're not going to be able to put it back and it's going to be a mess it's kind of like 
you know, when you're having a discussion with somebody close to you, maybe a spouse or a good friend, and somebody says something, you know, difficult or, uh, you know, out of place or a little bit provocative to another, and the next, the other person gets their back up a little bit. Once that starts, it's very, very hard to like back it up. Um, so the verse is telling us to do whatever we can to avoid that, because basically if we don't, we're going to have a mess, like having water all over. Uh, yes, Moan, it's hard to direct, and you once the words are out there, you're right, you can't take them back. Uh, it's very, very difficult. That's when you have to get into, um, you know, the mode of amends and trying to, you know, get forgiveness from the person uh, and so forth. Interestingly, this also suggests that it's better to abandon your own ego or even your own position, depending on the circumstances, in order to avoid all that resulting damage. Now, if you're talking about a major issue of truth or, you know, a life and death kind of situation or something where the outcome, you know, is, is very critical, then you have to weigh that. But a lot of the things that we end up getting in quarrels about, in fact, I might suggest even most of them, it's not that critical. And so, Mona, yes, to your point, self-control. If I can set my own ego aside and say, okay, you know, he said that thing that maybe I could take wrong, but if I just let it go by, you know, um, you know I'm going to avoid a big mess. Now, I'm not suggesting you should turn into a pleaser. Okay, that's a whole affliction of itself. But the verse is basically saying, yeah, once the quarrel starts, it's like water released. So why get into a fight if you don't have to? Because you'll just have a mess to clean up. You potentially damage the relationship. You potentially make an enemy of the other person. And then you have to watch out for them. So if you think about all those downsides, it's like, well, then what's the upside of getting into this quarrel? Not very much. Kind of hard to think of too many upsides to getting into the quarrel, but a lot of downsides. Interestingly, the Rabag suggests that you should abandon your investment in an argument before the matter becomes public. Because once it becomes public, it's much harder for you to withdraw. Um, if, if you've stuck your, your neck out in the public domain on an issue with somebody, you know, and called somebody out, now you've got a real problem because it's very hard to, to take that back uh, in the same way that it's very hard to, you know, stop the quarrel once it starts. Uh, so uh, that's the general uh, point of the verse as I understand it. Stop the argument before it even comes out. Let, let it go because otherwise you got a big mess that's going to be very hard to clean up. <laughs> Lori and Terry, that's a beautiful analogy. You need a pretty good shop back to get it all back from the cracks of your life. Oh, that is so true. That is so true. Uh, if, you know, if, if you just think about any, any gooey or whatever substance. Uh, I was once working and um, this wasn't a coral, but, you know, I had a hot, I had hot water with honey in it. 
and I spilled it on my computer keyboard. And you can imagine what that was like to try to get it out from all those cracks. Well, the same thing is true in your life. If you have, you know, bad relations with somebody and, and that just grows and festers in them and then they talk to other people and, you know, pretty soon the whole thing spreads. And, and then you can't undo it. It's like it takes on uh, a, uh, uh, an energy of its own. And it's very hard to stop the whole thing even though it may have started from just a little thing. So, uh, best to avoid quarrels, see them coming before they start, and deflect them and not, uh, not take them on. Any questions about this point? Yes, Melanie, it absolutely grows out of proportion. Uh, and yes, Lori and Terry does have, have energy of its own. And, and at that point, it's really hard to stop. Uh, if you can sort of imagine, you know, if you're at the top, of, if your house is at the top of the hill in the neighborhood and uh, you accidentally, uh, or, or for whatever reason, you have a big water tank up there and the water tank breaks and the water goes in every direction down that hill through everybody's backyard and into their basements and you know it, it you can't you can't take it back and and now it's in so many places it's just almost impossible to clean up so or very difficult good points thank you yes mona what a bill will face you that is true Okay, let's move on then. Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 15. And that verse reads, Justifying an evildoer and condemning a righteous person are both an abomination of Hashem. Justifying an evildoer and condemning a righteous person are both an abomination of Hashem. So, what are the questions we might ask there? before we get started in trying to understand the verse. Questions first. Okay, Lori and Terry, thank you. How will you justify an evildoer? How, what does that mean? And I might ask in terms of definitions, what's an abomination of Hashem? We've come across that term before. And why are both of these things considered an abomination of Hashem? So, a person who justifies an evildoer creates an environment where evil can flourish. And that clearly has consequences for the society. Uh, the Ralbag points out that people will be led to emulate the wicked. I mean, if a society that uh, justifies if there's a society that justifies evildoers, then people will emulate those people. And a society that is taken over by evil uh, cannot last. Yeah, just to clarify uh, the Ralbag, and I'm looking here at the uh, art scroll, um, it says that uh, he's suggesting that uh, a person who supports um, evil 
uh, and Bildel's nobility is acting in a manner that God hates, for they write, for such an action deprives righteous leaders of the ability to influence others and creates an atmosphere that legitimizes sin. Uh, so it's, it's exactly the wrong way uh, that you want a society to go. The consequences for an entire society where evil is continually justified are likely to lead to the destruction of that society. Now, similarly, uh, if righteous people are condemned, so you got a place where the righteous are condemned, people will avoid them. They won't emulate them. And the righteous won't have the opportunity to influence the society positively, as we just read. So again, the society is in a position of heading down a road that will lead to its destruction. Um, both ways. Now, uh, and, and Laurie and Terry, uh, yes, you're indicating, uh, you know, the, the society or whoever's doing it did not honor the righteous person. Uh, and that's a very important thing because if, if they're condemned, then they will not have an opportunity to make the impact on society that they could. Now, both of these things that we just discussed ultimately seem to lead to the destruction of that society. And I'll suggest that an abomination of Hashem here means something that leads to the destruction of Hashem's creation. And in both cases, both of these actions lead to the destruction of the society, and therefore the actions are an abomination of Hashem, because Hashem, uh, as we understand, loves uh, his creation. So we're learning from the verse then about the importance of accurately judging events, if you will, and calling a spade a spade. We shouldn't justify evil, and we shouldn't condemn the righteous, but rather we should support ideas of truth and reality within our society, uh, and we get to see through this verse the consequences of doing the opposite. Okay, let me pause here for questions. All right, in that case, let's move on to Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 16. Welcome, Rex. Glad to have you with us. Verse 16 reads, Why is there money in the hand of a fool to purchase wisdom, though he has not a heart? Why is there money in the hand of a fool to purchase wisdom, though he has not a heart? What kind of questions pop up around that verse? I'll suggest a couple of possibilities. Ah, uh, Linda, good. Uh, how did he, how does money purchase wisdom? And Lori and Terry, yes, how did he get the money? Good. So how can you get money and how do you purchase wisdom? It seems like a really odd thing, especially based on all our, our studies uh, so far. And, and then, you know, I would ask, well, what does the heart part have to do with it? You know, the last part about though he has not a heart. 
And then, what's the meaning altogether here? I mean, what's the practical implication that King Solomon is trying to teach us? And Mona, yes, why do you have to pay money? So, um, so the commentators give a variety of interpretations uh, around this verse. But most agree that the verse is talking about the usefulness of Torah study for one who lacks heart. So let's look at that. First, a fool could get money from a variety of sources. Eh, maybe he inherited it, maybe he worked at some type of job, uh, maybe he, you know, won lotto, uh, we don't know. But the verse seems to start with the premise that the fool has some money and that he wants to purchase wisdom. And maybe that purchases through books, maybe it's through a teacher, uh, uh, hard to know. We don't know from the verse. We just have a setup here that shows that the fool wants to acquire wisdom and he seems to have the financial resources to do it. Okay? So, the verse, however, has a catch. He doesn't have a heart. What does it mean not to have a heart? I mean, obviously, it's not literal or he wouldn't be alive. Here, the Rabbeinu Yonah says that the person lacks the character traits necessary to learn. The Ibn Ezra considers it a lack of a strong desire to learn, and thus the person will not be able to succeed. Slightly different interpretations. Rabbeinu Yonah talking about the person lacks the character traits necessary to learn. Ibn Ezra talking about lack of a strong desire to learn. <clears throat> the Talmud talks about the lack of the fear of Hashem, <coughs> which we've previously defined as the fear of consequences. So we've got several different interpretations of uh, what it means to have a heart. These also seem to be pointing to a general theme. And the general theme is that the fool lacks the necessary drive or intestinal fortitude to take what he's actually hearing and put it into practice. Okay, And that leads us to an important point. Uh, so let me pause and, uh, and look at comments here. So, um, Moni, you've asked, is that a care factor concerning the heart? Uh, well, it might be depending on how we define the lack uh, of heart. Again, if it's, if it's the, uh, the Ibn Ezra uh, talking about lack of a strong desire to learn, that might be something that uh, he, can, he can take care of. But Lorian Terry, you're right. He understands he's missing something, or at least he has, for some reason, he has a desire to get wisdom. Now, it might be, you know, for uh, a, a reason that we would consider to be the wrong reason, but the sheer fact that he's searching for it and wants to get it, you know, if he can, that may end up leading him to uh, the right reason. A lot of us start studying and learning and trying to do things for what we could call the wrong reason, but eventually when we study enough, we come around to doing it uh, for the right reason. And Ross, yes, wisdom is no good without understanding. 
You can hear a lot of stuff, but if you don't get it, if you don't fully understand it, it's just going to pour off you like water off a duck's back. Um, uh, and Rex, very interesting comment. It says he reminds you of Rain Man. You know, he can remember everything he's ever read in his life, but he has to have someone uh, has to have someone dress him. And the interesting thing about that is, if you can remember everything you've ever read in your life, okay, that's a memory exercise. The question is, has it really affected you? Uh, that would be, I'll suggest, one difference between a computer and a person. You know, a computer can store uh, all the, the books you've ever read. I mean, you could have them on a Kindle or a, a, any other e-reader or in a regular computer and word search them all. But the difference is, did that knowledge affect me? So, there are two parts to learning. The first is getting the information. Whatever that information is. Could be an idea, could be something about a character trait, could be some clarity around wisdom. Whatever it is, you have to be able to hear it. That's the first thing. If you can't hear it, then, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to get anywhere. So you have to be able to take in the information. But the second is just as important. And that is that you have to be able to put what you hear into practice. Otherwise, what's the point of learning it? If the learning doesn't affect you, then what's the value? That's why speed reading through 50 books a week isn't the answer. Because how much of that actual reading affects the person? And if there's no effect, then, as Rabbi Moskowitz has pointed out, a person is like a donkey carrying books. Uh, there's, there's no impact. The learning has to affect us. And that can happen naturally by going over and over the ideas until they are clear to us. That's review, not rote memorization. Okay? Uh, review is where you go over the idea step by step as if it were new, not skipping any steps so that you can see why the idea is true, and then slowly but surely those ideas begin to affect your actual behavior. Okay, any questions on that or this verse? All right, then let's move on to Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 17. 17, 17 reads, A friend's love is for all times, and should say a brother is born for affliction. A friend's love is for all times, and a brother is born for affliction. Um, now, the Judaic Press translation uh, says, at all times, love a friend, for he is born a brother for adversity. That would lead to a different interpretation, or probably, uh, but we're going to stick uh, with this one. A friend's love is for all times, and a brother is born for affliction. So, you know what I'm going to ask? What are the questions around that? Friend's love is for all times, and a brother is born for affliction. 
Mona, why just a friend? Yes. Interesting. And, and doesn't the verse seem at first glance to be a little bit backwards? Uh, I mean, if we're just talking, Lori and Terry, good question, who's your brother? I, without the verse giving me a, um, a different clue, then my first approach is to take the verse literally as it reads. Uh, so a brother would be like my biological brother, your biological brother, uh, sisters, siblings. So wouldn't you think that, you know, like the, the friend or the brother would be around for, uh, for all time? Uh, now, Linda, you've asked, why does your brother give affliction? Uh, I'll suggest the verse doesn't say that. It doesn't say the brother gives affliction. It says the brother is born for affliction, which could mean that he's given it to me, or it could mean that he's around when the affliction happens. Okay? Mona, why not a friend born for affliction? Yeah, okay. Good question. Uh, okay, Ross. Good point. You've said a friend is there for the good times, but a brother is there in times of adversity. But that would slightly be at odds with our verse because the verse is saying a friend's love is for all times. So, and you all know, you know, there are certain friends that, yeah, they'll hang around when times are good, but when things get tough, they're out of there. Uh, so what is King Solomon up to here? Let's look at the first half. It says that a friend's love is for all times. Now, we know that we have friends who come and go in our lives. So the verse must be talking about a different type of friend, because obviously we see that the first type that I just described don't necessarily last. These can be the type of friends, in fact, we could just call them acquaintances, who we happen to have because of the circumstances we are in. Uh, you make friends at work, at school, uh, the neighborhood where you live, and so forth. They aren't people that you would necessarily seek out to be friends if you were looking for friends, although some of them might end up being that way, but rather they're people who you get along with because they happen to be in circumstances similar to yours. They happen to be in your environment. Okay? All right, and... Rex, you've pointed out, do we need to remember this was King Solomon and his brothers were contesting him to be king? I don't think that, uh, and I've not heard an interpretation, that we would have to interpret a verse specifically as to King Solomon's circumstances because he purportedly wrote this book to be an instruction manual for beginners in, in life. Uh, so I think we would take the brother to be a general brother uh, that, that anyone have, or anyone might have. So the friend uh, in, the, in the beginning, we, when you talk about friends, you know, friends kind of come and go. I moved to this neighborhood. Okay, I got friends in, the neighbor, in that neighborhood. Now I don't keep track of the friends I had in the first neighborhood. So I'll suggest the verse gives us another clue. It says the word love. Verse says, a friend's love is for all times. So now ask yourself the question, how many friends do we have 
who truly love us. Yeah, okay, I might have a friendly relationship with the mailman, but I wouldn't say that he loves me. So I'm going to suggest that the first half of the verse is talking about a true friend. This is a type of friend whose love for me is completely benevolent. They don't like me because of the car I drive or the outfits I wear or uh, because he likes the other guys I hang out with. A true friend loves you for who you are and his actions with regard to you are with your best interest in mind. Uh, this could be considered sometimes uh, perhaps a rarity. Uh, we're talking about somebody who is going to stick with you through thick and thin and truly has your best interest at heart for the right reasons. A friend like this uh, is the kind who will tell you something that you need to hear even if it's uncomfortable for you to hear it. And they won't tell you that out of a sense of one-upmanship or power or control, but out of a true sense of caring about you. Okay, and Mona, you suggest the kind of people who will get out of bed without question and come to your aid. Yes, that can be true. They're, they're interested in you and your, uh, your true welfare. Uh, you may be familiar uh, with in the Tanakh, uh, the story about David and Jonathan. They had this kind of relationship. Uh, it was pure love. Uh, Jonathan, even though he was in line for the throne, uh, recognized that David was God's anointed for that role, uh, and he helped David, is my understanding of the events there. That kind of love is for all time. In other words, a person who loves you like that will love you for your whole life. They won't just be there in the good times, and they won't just be there in the bad times. I mean, there are people who only show up when there's bad stuff happening. They'll show up to help you, but they're gone once the, you know, the bad stuff is, is over. This is the kind of love that, as the verse says, will be for all times. Now, to the best of my knowledge, there is no guarantee that any of your blood relatives will love you this way. It could happen, but the first part of the verse isn't talking about blood relatives. And someone who loves you as a true friend, as we've just described, could just as easily be a non-relative as a relative. Okay, so that's what the first half, as I understand it, is talking about. A true friend who uh, will you know, love you uh, your whole life and have your best interest in mind. Um, and Mona, yes, looking out uh, for each other. In this case, the friend isn't even necessarily doing it because uh, you know, they expect reciprocation, um, but just that they care for you that much. And yes, sometimes the non-relative can be much closer to you uh, than a relative. Now, there's still the second half of the verse. Second half of the verse says that a brother is born for affliction. Now, what does that mean? People place a lot of value on the idea of family. You know, family, that's a positive thing 
because strong families are an important part of our social structure. And it's nice to be part of a, a strong family. At the same time, a person, and Mona, as you just pointed out, is not always closest to his relatives or her relatives, particularly brothers and sisters. They might be, but it's not always the case. However, except in very estranged situations where, you know, you're having some kind of giant lifelong feud, siblings will usually come to the aid of one of their own who is in trouble, even if they're not close otherwise. Uh, you know, I need to go visit him because, um, you know, he, he's my brother and he's in trouble or he's sick and I need to go take care of him. Uh, the rest of the year, no, I don't go usually visit him and whatever, but he needs me and, you know, he's family. That kind of thing. Uh, so Lori and Terry, in this case, a brother is your blood relative brother. You know, the, the, uh, the brother you have who came from the same mother and father. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily talking about a broader reach of that. Uh, so they will, I would suggest generally come to your aid when you're in trouble, uh, even if you don't have a close relationship. The bond of being a sibling together causes more of a pull to step in and help when things aren't going well than it might for uh, an average, you know, non-sibling. Um, if a person gets sick, you know, who will first come to visit them? Usually, you know, brother, family, sister, those kinds of people. So, the second half of the verse, a brother is born for affliction, seems to be telling us that a true friend's love is for life, while a brother is more likely to show up in the hard times. Siblings who show up in the hard times and then leave when things get better. And you, again, you've probably met people like this before. Things go bad, they show up, things are good, they're gone. Uh, they don't stick around to develop or maintain a strong relationship with you. They're just there in rescue mode, okay? And they want to uh, uh, want to help. So the verse seems to be teaching us the difference between a sibling relationship and the love of a true friend. And while I may not be close to the sibling, they'll likely show up if I'm in trouble or need help, while the true friend's love will be there all the time. Okay, questions and comments. Mona, you've said it's really strange when you come across someone and you're on the same plane and you click on the same things. Yeah, it'd be a very interesting study to look into, you know, friendship, particularly lifelong friendships, and try to understand what, what makes that happen. Uh, what, what makes people mix or not mix uh, and that's true probably with, you know, husbands and wives. You meet someone and, you know, it, it just works. Uh, and it works for many, many years. Uh, other people, you, you know, you probably wouldn't want to stay in the same room with them for an hour. Uh, so, yes, it is a strange thing, a very interesting psychological uh, uh, phenomenon. Okay, I think we have time for one more. Uh, Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 18. It says, a man who lacks heart will give his handshake 
to be a cosigner for his friend. A man who lacks heart will give his handshake to be a cosigner for his friend. Very interesting. What are the questions around that? Okay, Lorian Terry, what's with the handshake bit? What does that mean? And Terry, yes, why would he be a cosigner? And Mona, why does he lack heart? Yeah. So we need to figure out what's a man who lacks heart? Why does he say that he'll give his handshake? Why doesn't it just say he'll be a cosigner for his friend? Why add the handshake part? And interestingly, the verse seems to be implying that being a cosigner for a friend is a bad thing. Is that the case or not? Yeah, and Moni, you said, why his friend? Okay, so what's up with the friend part? So, we've talked before that when this book was written, the term heart was often used to refer to the mind. So a person who lacks heart is one who lacks, uh, is missing something, not physically, in his mind, which means understanding. Um, he, he is not, his intellectual capacity has not been developed to where it should be. Uh, he lacks understanding and wisdom. Uh, and in fact, the art scroll version inserts the word understanding uh, in brackets. <coughs> so... The first part seems to be talking about a person who lacks understanding. All right. Now, when you give your handshake to be a cosigner for a friend, at least as I understand the way this would be used in a business deal, you are giving your word that you'll fulfill the loan or whatever the contract calls for on behalf of your friend, if he doesn't. In essence, you're saying, okay, if my friend reneges, I'm on the hook. So it would be like, uh, let's see, your, um, your friend wants to buy a new car and he doesn't qualify for a loan. So co-signing means you're going to go in and co-sign the loan, which means if he stops making payment, the loan company can come after you for the money. So that's what the co-signing is about. Now, it's interesting, as I mentioned before, that the verse talks about giving a handshake to be a co-signer. Why not just say, be a co-signer? Why not say, a man who lacks heart will be a co-signer for his friend? Why put the handshake part in the middle? So let's think about this. What happens when you sign a loan deal, for example? If you've ever done it, you know, you know how this goes through. There are a lot of papers to sign. There are a lot of terms and conditions. There are, there's legal language to read that talks about all different aspects of the deal and so forth. Now, Lori and Terry, you, I think, have hit on the point, but he didn't co-sign. He shook hands. Right. So a wise person, when he's undertaking a deal, and if he were to co-sign a deal, 
he reads all that legal language very carefully to ensure that there's nothing in the deal that he's not comfortable with. But what's happening in our verse? He's not co-signing the deal, at least not at first. He's giving his handshake to the deal. In other words, he is agreeing to be a co-signer without reading the contract. And that, I submit, is a person who lacks understanding. How does he know what's going to be in the contract? What if the terms aren't acceptable? Well, that's too bad, because he has already given his word through his handshake that he will co-sign for his friend on the deal. And that is not a smart thing to do. Linda, you're absolutely right. That could be very dangerous. What if you get down to, to signing the documents and uh, there's something in the document that says, and oh, by the way, if your friend reneges on the loan and you miss a single payment, we're entitled to come completely repossess your home and everything in it. Um, so, uh, yeah, Ross, it's uh, co-signing can be like you get the new car and you go drive it, but if you lose your job, I'm the one that ends up paying for it. So this is a person who lacks understanding. He's leaving open the possibility that he's going to be obligated to sign something that's unacceptable to him. So the verse is telling us how careful we need to be. I mean, first of all, we need to be careful in any deal that we get involved in from a business standpoint to make sure we understand all aspects of the deal but particularly in a deal where we are co-signing for a friend. We need to check out every detail first before we ever agree to co-sign. Okay, questions or comments on that? Okay, um, you know, I think we can get one more verse in. We might go a little over, but we got hung up a little on technical issues early. So um, let's see if we can... Uh, slip one more in here. Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 19 says, One who loves betrayal loves contention. One who opens his mouth arrogantly is asking to be broken. One who loves betrayal loves contention. One who opens his mouth arrogantly is asking to be broken. What do you think about questions there? Okay, Linda, thank you. What's contention? What's that about? And who's a person who loves betrayal? This seems like an, an odd thing. And if he loves betrayal, why does he love contention? And then, what's it mean to open your mouth arrogantly? And then, what's it mean to be broken? And how does each half of this verse work? I mean, do we, how does it work in real life that we see this? And how does each half work? And how, or, or, I'm sorry, how do the, the halves fit together? Okay, and Mona, you're suggesting gossip. Uh, I'm not sure which term you're tying that one to, uh, or which part, part of the verse. But let's start at the beginning and see if we can define some terms and come to an understanding. What's betrayal? 
Betrayal is when you're disloyal to someone, okay, or you act in the interest of their enemy. Uh, and if you do that, that's going to create contention. And contention, uh, Mona, you've suggested uh, that gossip loves contention. Contention is, is strife or conflict uh, or disorder. Uh, so that could come from gossip, absolutely. Uh, in this case, it's talking about betrayal, or although betrayal could be done through gossip. Uh, I told you something uh, personal about myself and asked you to keep it a secret, uh, and you turned around and told 15 of your closest friends. Uh, and I feel betrayed. Okay, So that's going to create contention uh, and strife and conflict and disorder. Why? Because people are going to be mad at you because you did that. I mean, they expect a certain consistency. People expect people to be loyal. And you just rock their world. So they're going to be upset with you. And that's going to create conflict for you because they're not going to be happy with you. So now you have some enemies. As well as it's going to create conflict for the people that you betrayed. Uh, I mean, they're going to probably be in some kind of a pickle over this. Uh, and the word betrayal suggests that it could be a major pickle. Uh, and that's going to create contention for them, which is in turn going to make them probably matter at you, which will create more contention for you. So a person who loves betrayal, that is, they are, you know, the, they're willing to do that. I'm not talking about somebody who, you know, drops a secret by accident or something. A person who loves going out to do that, uh, they apparently have a love of contention or a love of strife, a love of conflict, because that's what that leads to. Now, arrogance is an exaggerated sense that a person has of his own importance or his own abilities. Okay? An exaggerated idea of myself that I either some strength I have is a mobility I have is greater than it really is, or the importance uh, of me is greater than it really is. So the verse says that one who opens his mouth arrogantly is asking to be broken. So what happens when a person opens his mouth arrogantly? He has now set him up, set himself up perfectly for a fall. Why? Because almost anyone could, with knowledge of him or the situation could come along and show that he's overextended himself, either in what he knows or what he can do. You know, you can imagine the situation. Uh, some guy um, talks about, you know, how he, he uh, just worked out at the gym and he lifted uh, 200 pounds. And a guy standing there listening says, oh, that's nothing. I can do 50 push-ups with one hand. Oh, really? Why don't you get down on the floor and show us? And if he has exaggerated, okay, opened his mouth arrogantly and overextended himself, he's now in a position where he's going to have to put up or shut up. And then you see people, as I'm, you've probably all experienced, well, you know, I, I, I just hurt my shoulder this morning or... Uh, well, the floor's not clean. I really can't do it here. And, oh, I have an appointment. I have to get going. But, you know, uh, but a person who, who opens his mouth with arrogance 
is perfectly setting themselves up to be broken, okay, by somebody who's going to come along and challenge their importance or challenge their ability, which uh, they won't be able to support. Okay, does this make sense so far? So that leaves one more question. What do the two halves have to do with each other? And I struggled with this one. Uh, I did not see anything in the commentaries that helped me with regard to understanding why the two halves of this verse are together. The, and I'm not totally happy with the answer that I have, but it's the best that I've been able to come up with. And you are welcome to ponder this question and see if you see a, a, a different connection. But what I see is that both halves of the verse produce a result that creates undesirable consequences for me. In the first half, if, if I'm a person who loves betrayal, I get contention from others. And that is going to be an undesirable consequence sooner or later. And in the second half, if, you know, I open my mouth arrogantly, I'm going to get broken. So either way, I'm ending up with a consequence that I don't like. Ross, yes, my credibility and reputation is, is uh, destroyed. Okay. And uh, Terry and Lori, I might assume you meant lies uh, you know, to do evil things. Yeah, one who uh, loves betrayal. Uh, maybe in, in that spot. Really, lo oh, loves to do evil things. Thank you. Uh, yeah, person, you know, is drawn to that. And they are going to end up with undesirable consequences. So the verse seems to be a warning against these behaviors. One, don't betray people. And two, don't be arrogant. Because either way, it's going to end up in a bad spot for you, or you will end up in a bad spot. Thank you all very much for joining, and I hope you'll be able to join us next time.